there's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, We guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hello and welcome to the MMQB Monday Morning NFL Podcast. I'm your host, Gary Grandling. I am joined by both Jenny Brentis and Connor Orr of the Weekside Podcast. And we are all wearing our, our various formal wear for this one because it is the specialist show of uh, the month of May, at least. When we recap the draft, we are going to do all the biggest storylines. This is We're just starting. I'm just I'm guessing this is going to go on for like three hours. So I, I hope you guys, I, I hope you use the bathroom before the show started. And uh, and we'll see how this goes. But uh, I guess each of you, I just want to hear how how did you survive uh, draft weekend here? Because it's always a fun, but also <laughs> taxing uh, couple of days for us. Well, I got a mid afternoon text from Greg Bishop on Saturday, being like, "Hey, who was picked number one ninety nine? And I was like, "Oh, they're not at." 199 yet Greg like it hasn't <laughs> happened yet it was a Tom Brady pick we had just done a story about it so he was eager to see who it was it ended up being a defensive lineman drafted by the Vikings uh Jalen Twyman I believe was the name um but yeah so that was just one representation of how long the draft can drag on Gary uh as you know our uh our draft night uh 
we spent uh, the hours of about 11 until 3 o'clock in the morning together on uh, Thursday in an exercise that we always say we're never going to do again, and then we end up doing again and saying that, oh, it's going to be easier this time. But the the round two and three mock draft is um, among the worst things on the planet um, for several reasons. But it was good to uh, to talk of, uh, you know, some, some Pete Warner with you deep into the night on Thursday. <laughs> and uh, the, the number of things we shuffled that at the time seemed, uh, at least to me, I, mean, I think you were over it. I was like, oh, listen uh, – Connor, I'm sorry. We got to move Pete Werner down. Like he's not going 66 here. He's going to go like 74. That when that happened, I I am not going to lie. I I ejected any care concern I had for this project. Like I saw, I entered Pete Warner like this, and I'm sure Pete Warner is a fine person, but like in the grand <laughs> scheme of things, very middling for what we're trying to do here. And then like I put him like to this spot to the Bengals, and then I just watch Gary in the Google Doc take him and move him down like four <laughs> places. And I was just like, you know what? Uh, I I don't I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do anything else with this. <laughs> Connor, you're just being ridiculous. I actually think he went slightly higher than than uh, than that than what we Pete Warner did actually at. go pretty high. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Good for you, Pete. Keep an eye on him. We doubt him. Now he's gonna <laughs> he's gonna show us or or something. Is that the takeaway from the day two mock draft? I don't know. All right, Somebody, guys. The universe is showing us something. Yes. Yes. Up. So uh, as a, as a lot of you know, I read a lot of fanfic. Uh, crossovers of movies with the word day in them, uh, you know, like Gary Marshall's Valentine's Day and Independence Day. Uh, it's pretty good stuff. But uh, this one really, this draft really, uh, one of my crossovers with, with Draft Day and with Groundhog Day. It was a lot like that because that Aaron Rodgers for the second straight year is the story of Draft Weekend. And I know I went a long way for that uh, joke that wasn't very good, but... Uh, uh, it's done I was now. Wondering guys. where it was going for yeah. a while there. <laughs> <laughs> but There's Aaron... nothing I like better than when someone else is telling a circuitous joke that may or may not land than watching Jenny watch the joke. It's it's so much better than anything else because it's just normally me doing it, and then I I just get a kick out of watching her be like, "Where is this landing?" You know, Do I you... actually thought of this today. I was with a friend and her toddlers, and the older child was encouraging the younger child to uh, head up the stairs in the park, and he was saying, "I'm right here, I'm right here," to encourage her to move up the stairs. And she looks at him at one point and goes, "Oh." And I was like, that is me. Like, <laughs> this is how I respond to Connor all of the time. Like, like it's like, oh, I see is your joke. Was, here was a toddler literally, you know, using my line. It was, it was tremendous. Oh. There's just more of you out there, which is good for the world. It is. It really is good news. And by the way, Connor, I wrote that joke while doing the uh, day two mock draft. So uh, there it is for you. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, it's probably what people want to hear about, and now we're going to let you all down because none of us have hard information on what's going to happen with Aaron Rodgers here, uh, so we're going to play sort of a gut feel type of game here of what is going to happen with Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers at this point, because it, uh, you know, the latest was, uh, what, Tariko tracked him down at the Kentucky Derby, and he didn't want to talk, but he said he was bummed out that uh, that the that the, the friction got out there, and I it doesn't seem 100% done. It seems maybe like 94% done. 
done, though, I would put it at? I think you're underestimating the calculations that Aaron Rodgers has made throughout this process. I think the leaking of the information, the timing of the leaking of the information, the fact that he knew that he was going to be at the Kentucky Derby to be reached for comment, and then uh, Faux posited himself on the moral high ground is all completely textbook here. And I can't. Like, I can't believe that anybody is like, oh, well, he wished the Packers fans well. That must mean that, you know, that that's really what he's thinking. No, this guy is a plotting, you know, Machiavellian uh, human being, like capable of (laughs) incredible things, including disrupting, completely exploding the Packers draft room minutes before the draft started. And I think that was entirely on purpose. Well, that is a strong take, Connor, but I I appreciate your commitment to it. Um, I mean, of course, the drama this year was because of what happened last year. So he was the story on two consecutive first nights of the draft because of what happened last year on the first night of the draft. I would agree with you, Gary, and maybe it's just like my... You know, you always allow for the possibility that something can be worked out. And I would say it's not 100% at this point. Uh, I thought Matt LaFleur, who was in a really impossible position, and I mean, it really seems like Rodgers has this rift with the front office who made the decision to draft Jordan Love a year ago. And here's your head coach. Now, of course, there may be things going on between Rodgers and LaFleur. There has certainly been a lot of attention on that relationship. But LaFleur did everything he could to assert that Rodgers was the guy and say, I won't even let my brain go there. Like he gave a very strong, you know, this is not what we want um, on the final day of the draft. So I did think that was interesting and also felt like, yeah, he's just kind of trapped in a really difficult place here. It's uh, it, it is interesting. I, I was, you know, I was starting to sort of formulate my thoughts of what a, a Jordan Love led Packers team might look like in 2021, and and what's gonna what's gonna happen going forward here. Who the market might be apparently wants to go out west. Is it the Broncos? Is it uh, I I don't even, I don't even know who else would get involved in the sweepstakes. I mean, is is there uh, if you really want to get the clicks rolling in, do you propose the Aaron Rodgers for Russell Wilson trade, where uh, the two disgruntled quarterbacks? change change uh teams to i i guess general areas where they have some sort of uh link to at this point but uh i you know it it's not quite what the texan situation was with deshaun watson back in february where you were saying well if they if they move on from him they really don't have another option unless they get a quarterback or get a high draft pick and well the packers have their option in house they just i i don't know how you possibly get anything resembling fair market value for Aaron Rodgers at this point. I enjoyed that um, pro football talk a couple hours before the draft kind of leaked his uh, Rodgers ideal destinations. And um, obviously the 49ers were there um, and the Broncos and then the Raiders because he wants to be out into the West coast. And if I'm Brian Kudekunst, I say, great, you go ahead and you play for the Raiders. That's what I would do. I would trade him to the Raiders. I would say, if that's what you would like to do, you would like to go play for John Gruden and the Raiders, then go right ahead. And I, 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 I only want a first round, one first round pick back. That's it. And, and we'll all move on and just watch him torch his career at 
the end of his career to the ground. That's what I would do if I was an angry, passive, aggressive general manager. Um, but you know, I, I, maybe I'm just too well practiced as an angry, passive, aggressive person, but that's what I was thinking about that throughout the entirety of Thursday afternoon. Yeah. I thought the list of potential destinations was strange and obviously it's limited by the teams that haven't made other quarterback moves this off season, uh, or don't have, you know, or a team like the chiefs for instance, but, um, you know, I don't think either the Broncos or the Raiders would be at the top of my list. First of all, you're in the same division as Mahomes and the Chiefs. Uh, also, you know, there are some things to like about the Broncos roster, and they're adding to a, a strong defense, and there would be a lot of weapons there. But, you know, is that a good marriage with the offensive staff, which is of prime importance to Rodgers? So I think your point is a really good one, Connor, is that, are either of those situations going to be ultimately what he wants? It's very different from Brady becoming a free agent and then, you know, handpicking a team where he wants to go. The, the, uh, all, the, the quarterback movement process when you're under contract with the team, and listen, I fully support all players exercising their will and their power and their leverage. Uh, I think we need more of it in sports, but it's very different when it requires a trade versus when you're like Brady and your contract's coming up and you can pick a destination. All right. So everyone has to make their, make their claim. Now, who is Aaron Rodgers going to be playing for in week one next season? And if you're wrong, we're just going to, I don't know. Kick us off. We ever had this conversation. Connor, where is he playing next year? He's going to play for the Packers. Like, this is just dumb. This is like, um, this is the audibles thing all over again um, with the with the training camp story. And it's like, trouble's brewing, and then they're going to grovel, and they're going to sign him to a big extension, and everything's going everything's gonna to be fine. Um, and just to note, I think that it's unfair and presumptuous to... Uh, have wielded the Jeopardy job the way that it was wielded um, as someone who uh, takes Jeopardy, views Jeopardy as a very sacrosanct uh, program uh, at my seven o'clock staple to assume that you already had the job, which is basically how it's sounding <laughs> saying, well, if he doesn't play, he's just going to go host Jeopardy. Well, I think Anderson Cooper might have something to say about that. And I think Ken Jennings might have something to say about that. And Katie Couric and all the other people who did a tremendous job guest hosting Jeopardy. You weren't the only one that did a good job. So that's that. Jenny? I'm going to go with the Packers as well. I think it will come down to a commitment beyond 2021. Uh, That's when his guaranteed money runs out. And so I think he's going to say it's more than just words at a press conference or in a, a letter on the team website. You need to back it up with something that locks you in financially that you can't back out of. Like, I need to know that I'm your guy. Uh, I played, I was an MVP last season. Uh, maybe you hoped that I would fade out. I haven't. And you need to put up in order to keep me. I also think the Packers, we weren't very fun on this one. That's it. That was not. Yeah, someone no. should have spiced it up. I should Just have kidding. The Browns. And seen Connor's reaction. <laughs> Texans. <laughs> oh, that'd be fun. 
All right. Uh, look, the story of the day going into draft day before all the Rodgers stuff went and, and before all the Tim Tebow uh, comeback stuff got out there. That, that was that was a fun hour where uh, it was Aaron Rodgers and Tim Tebow was making all the headlines here. But uh, distracted from the 49ers choice at number three, I guess the question is now, do they do they trade for Mac Jones in order to get him on the roster there? But uh, for now, they are going with Trey Lance as the, we'll call it sort of an heir apparent situation here with Jimmy Garoppolo. I don't know if Jimmy Garoppolo gets to claim an heir apparent. It seems a seems a little too formal, but uh, Trey Lance is going to be the guy there, and I said this in more in a, in a more mealy-mouthed manner leading up to the draft, but I, I will claim now it was, it was always going to be Trey Lance going to the 49ers. The fit is too good, and too many other things added up here. I, I can't understand how the 49ers would have looked at these quarterbacks and said... Uh, there was just no one else like Mac Jones. So when you say we like one of the guys who would fall to us, just stylistically, Mac Jones is so much different than the other four guys. It doesn't make sense. Like you had to, you had to pick from one of the others. I thought Zach Wilson and Trey Lance were the most similar guys in this in this draft class, and Trey Lance is going to be the guy, and I think he's a great fit there. Yeah, I I I think it made sense all along. I think you know the only th- reason that. You know, I'm sitting here kicking myself is that at midnight, you know, before the draft, I changed the Trey Lance pick to Mac Jones after saying it was going to be Trey Lance for the better part of three months, even before they made the trade. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think it makes the most sense. And, and we've said this a million times, but Kyle Shanahan said as much. I mean, he's done press conferences where he's talked about his time with Robert Griffin and almost like in a in sort of a longing way discussing like how his system works better when the quarterback forces the defense to account for an 11th man and the math changes, all the stuff he can do with right wide receivers change. And that's what Trey Lance is going to bring to the 49ers. But you know, you would hope or you would believe that there's probably, you know, more room for him to grow as a quarterback beyond what RG3 provided in Washington. So I think there's a, uh, just a lot of reasons to be excited about it. And it's a system now that every team in the NFL is basically borrowing or running from to some to running with for, for, uh, to some degree. But now we get to see it evolve in a way that we really haven't seen before. And I, I think that's exciting, too. I have two remaining burning questions. One is, how did so many people... Become, become allegedly so certain that it was Mac Jones. It's that, one thing to get a mm-hmm. pick wrong in the mock draft. I mean, I got plenty wrong, but I never said, I know it's going to be this guy. It's like, oh, this makes sense, right? But there were so many people saying, I know it's Mac Jones. It's always been Mac Jones. I don't know. And I think that's like a, a real indictment on our industry, to be honest with you, is that people take <laughs> a scrap agree. of information and they turn it into this, uh, you know, unimpeachable certainty about something when there's, you know, in, in many situations that are, it's rare for you to have that degree of certainty, especially with something like a draft pick. My second burning question is Kyle Shanahan said that he really mishandled the um, line about Jimmy Garoppolo when he said, uh, you know, who knows if anyone will be alive on Sunday. And yes, he did mishandle it. But what was he trying to say? Like, I just, it's not like, you know, (laughs) you got the words jumbled up. It's like, 
where was he going with that? And he said, oh, I called Jimmy afterward and I explained it to him. But I just can't imagine any explanation that would be satisfactory <laughs> after that public performance. Jimmy, I'm sorry to talk about uh, your untimely death. Um, let's... Uh... <laughs> I mean, I would not be satisfied by any explanation. I would probably just say, oh, I see, and hang up the phone. Well, yeah, that's exactly what would happen. Um, But the the problem was when he said it, too, it it looked like a predetermined line. Like, it looked like a line that he had walked in there with, right? Like, he was was ready to fire that thing when he said it. Um, And I don't know if maybe he just didn't bounce it off some other people first and and sort of try the room uh, before he went in there. But uh, it it was grim. You know, that is uh, that's that's not a fun thing to hear on. uh, You know, that's not a fun (laughs) thing to hear on like a random Tuesday, you know. Yeah. And, you know, not to make too much out of a single comment, but I do think a relationship between a head coach and a quarterback, especially when you're deemed a quarterback guru. And obviously there's no question that Kyle Shanahan's offense has changed the league and has become the predominant offense and the one that everyone's trying to replicate. But I do think part of succeeding is your relationship with your quarterback. So, you know, I think people need to devote equal time. Now, obviously they're, they're shifting from Jimmy to Trey Lance, but uh, if you're Trey Lance and you see that comment and then you're going to play for the head coach, I don't know. Like it was just so it was just a, such a jarring thing to say. And there were a lot of jokes about it. But I do think there's something underlying here and that like interpersonal skills are like important. You know, uh, listen, there's a lot of different ways to coach. And I'm not saying that one comment means everything, but it was just a strange comment. And I think it means a little bit more than something like, oh, I just misspoke and I quickly walked it back. I don't know that you can really walk back something like that. You know, what's really interesting is that um, I think one of the reasons that Kyle had held on to, uh, you know, he he blocked LaFleur and uh, McDaniel from interviewing for head coaching jobs for a long time. wasn't crazy about Robert Sala interviewing for head coaching jobs. Um, And I think part of the reason is because especially with Sala was so much of their like, and culture is in air quotes here, but like some of the identity that the team actually built throughout that Super Bowl run had to do with a lot of people that weren't Kyle. You know what I mean? Like the, there was other coaches on the staff that if you talk to people kind of got credited with, you know, the their, their identity or their culture or a lot of the things that the coach typically brings. And so that's an interesting point to raise, Jenny, is that like, you know, what is he now um, without some of these guys that have kind of come in and been the rah-rah, have been the soft touch, have been the motivating factors, you know, do you miss something like that when, when some of these coaches go away? And I, I think that's a, that's a really worthwhile question. As someone who consistently opens a show with bad one-liners, I, uh, I, I can relate to not <laughs> bouncing your material off people before you uh, run it out there. Sometimes you just got to do it. Gary, I could see you saying a version of what Kyle said if I called you and I was like, Gary, I think I really bombed this story. And you would have been like, well, I can't guarantee that you're going to be alive on Sunday, Connor. So what's the big deal? You know, uh, what? now now thinking of that, maybe my maybe I, my analysis was a little bit too harsh. I don't think so. It's the um, it's the it's a much harsher version of um what my uh, mentor in journalism school used to say, uh, well, Connor, it's just a story, and tomorrow people are going to use it to wrap dead fish. That's what she would say. 
might say. There you go. There you go. That's just, you know, that's what we're all trying to really say. Let's uh, let's move on to Chicago here. The Bears, the other uh, really, uh, we'll call this the headlining move. We're still going to go to uh, Mac Jones and, and some of these other teams that uh, did things we like or maybe we didn't like on a draft weekend here. But the Bears make the move, jump up and get Justin Fields. Uh, look, I, I fully support this for a couple of reasons. I, I, I don't know how you can not support it. Uh, number one, sh- sure. If Andy Dalton's going to be your starter this year, that's fine. He's not going to be your starter in 2022. Uh, if you're looking, it's way too early, but if you're looking at the 2022 draft class and trying to shape up, uh, you know, who's going to be available, maybe there's a Zach Wilson type that emerges, but, uh, if Justin Fields had gone back to school, he'd be the odds on favorite to be the first overall pick next year. So to get him this year, and to not have to completely, I don't know, blow up your drafts forever at this point is uh, certainly worth the price at this point. I think Fields was unfairly criticized for his on-field stuff as far as, you know, a lot of, a lot of people getting into the you know, serotonin's first read. They run a lot of option routes at Ohio State. When you run a lot of option routes, especially at a college program where you don't have the same practice time as, as like an NFL team might have, uh, you stare down your receivers because you have to know where that receiver is going before you let the ball go. So that's kind of by design. I think you can mold him a lot of different ways and, and come up with a really good quarterback here. And, you know, I, I guess the first question is, is Matt Nagy able to do that? Certainly the returns weren't very good with Mitchell Trubisky, who was not necessarily his pick, but certainly he was brought in to develop. And I guess the other question sort of sticking out to me is, we all are kind of assuming that this is playoffs or bust for for, uh, Matt Nagy and for Ryan Pace, but does this buy them more time? I mean, you don't necessarily want to draft Justin Fields and then switch coaches after the first year if you don't have some sort of Freddie Kitchens-esque implosion of your uh, of your entire program. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with that, Gary, but the way things play out, that's often not the case, right? There's a couple of recent examples that come to mind, you know, Anthony Lynn, and, and he did a great job with Justin Herbert in his mm-hmm. first year, didn't get to coach him beyond that first year. Todd Bowles with Sam Darnold in his first year uh, got fired after, after that, so... It doesn't always unfold that way. Uh, I think the Bears are in an interesting position because they had this number seven seed playoff berth. They weren't exactly what you would consider a playoff team last year and only were one because of the expanded field. Uh, So in in theory, they are coming off a a playoff appearance, Um, not an inspiring one. Um, (laughs) And so now this same regime stays in place and they get to pick the new quarterback. And so you would like to, you know give that player some consistency to develop. But the NFL doesn't always uh, work out that way. Now, I think the fact that they stuck with Nagy and Ryan Pace indicates that perhaps they, they will give the, you know them that time to uh, see what they have in fields and not have a situation where they rush fields out and try to play him early or don't go to fields because they're worried about their jobs. I mean, ideally, those are not factors in the rookie quarterback's development. But – you never know in the NFL. I'm I'm kind of in the minority on Nagy, I think, a little bit in that, I mean, he did take, and, and Gary, I know you've said this in the past too, but did take two kind of bad teams to the playoffs and yep. playoffs in quotes, right? I mean, because last year it was the, the seventh seed in the Nickelodeon game. Um, but at the same point, I do think that 
we were celebrating some of his ingenuity during his first year um, without realizing, I think, that it was to make up for so much of what Trubisky couldn't do, you know, and it's like, oh, these fun play calls were like the running backs throwing the ball. And it's like, well, you have to do that because there, there really isn't any other options. He can't trust his quarterback to do the things that he wants him to do. And, you know, maybe that's a lack of developmental ability and, and you could certainly point in that direction, but I'm excited just to see him with a different guy. And, you know, if it buys a bad coach an extra year, then I, I, that's a bummer because there are a lot of coaches like, Jenny said, who don't get that opportunity and don't get that leeway. But um, if there's a potential to marry the best of and the coolest of what we've seen with the Bears with a quarterback that I think has a lot of talent, um, that would be a lot of fun to, to see them kind of start propping themselves up a little bit in the NFC North. Yeah, you know, I have had this burning question about offensive coaches that come out of the Andy Reid tree. And Gary and I talked about this on a Monday morning episode a couple months ago, is that when you first come out of this offensive think tank that Andy Reid has created in Kansas City and you take that offense, you've seen some of his disciples have immediate success doing that. Matt Nagy had that first year in Chicago that was successful. Doug Peterson won a Super Bowl with the Eagles. But then the farther you get out of that offensive think tank, can you keep pace? Can you continue to diversify and adapt your offense based off of what opponents are learning about you? Can you continue to grow outside of that same offensive think tank? And I think that's still an outstanding question about Matt Nagy. Is he, you know, it's one thing to install the offense that you know, you developed and worked freshly the year before and have a, a strong year in Chicago. So now I think this is his opportunity. As you mentioned, Connor, he can do a lot of different things with Justin Fields as a quarterback. It opens up a lot of op- options uh, that he did not have with Mitchell Trubisky. So now I think will be a good truth serum uh, if, if he is the coach that can do that with Fields and the Bears. I like that you've had three burning questions so far on this podcast, by the way. Oh, gosh. Wow. This is my new Connor Orr, tea leaves, halcyon days. You know, really, I'm just going to go through and say I have a burning question for every team. So Hashtag Jenny's burning questions. <laughs> the questions are burning, and we have more of them coming up here. Uh, but, yeah, as far as the Bears go, you know what? You made the playoffs last year, and let's see you make the – Playoffs again, I guess, is the mandate. We'll see. You have to, yeah, it has to be playoffs, right? It has to be playoffs and not just the Nickelodeon game. You have to make it beyond the Nickelodeon game. (laughs) But they had a good draft. Like, I thought the move for Fields was shrewd. They took an opportunity, as you laid out earlier, Gary, and I thought the the move to get Tevin Jenkins was, was also a, a good one. And that was a player that a lot of people thought would go in round one. So I think they made some targeted uh, targeted moves. I've now said moves three times in the last 20 words. But, uh, you know, I thought uh, I thought it was a good a good draft for a team that has been criticized for some of its recent uh, moves. 
you know, because because of you, Connor, Jenny is now sitting there tallying like each phrase. And I know right. that's not right. in the show. That, that was not a fair thing for me to do. No, it's OK. It's OK. It's I, I need to be <laughs> held accountable. Wasn't there some children's book like the burning questions of so and so? I'm pretty sure that in my childhood there was like a, a young adult novel that I read at that age. So we had somebody uh, write in last week correctly pointing out that Toy Story was a notable quadrilogy. quadrilogy. So this week, if anyone has read a book in their childhood, The Burning Questions of X, Y, and Z, please answer this burning question of mine. Is it The Burning Questions of Bingo Brown by Betsy Byers? I I don't know. It might be. (laughs) That might be it, actually. (laughs) It came out in 1988. It's got three ratings on Amazon, uh, one five-star and two four-star reviews. 1988, or 1998 or 1988? Uh, came out in 88. Oh, 88. That, that could be it. I'll have to do some research, Connor. Connor could, said it was so work. much confidence, it has to be correct. Well, yeah. I mean, how many children's children's books? That would have been the... I would, but it, I would have been four, so this could have been a book that I would have easily read in middle school or whatever. So, yeah, this must be it, Connor. Good work. I'm going to have to do some research on this. Some hypercritical reviews of this on Amazon, by the way. Someone oh, this, called it this, uh, trite. Trite. Oh wow. Well, th- this cover Bingo looks Brown. familiar. A boy looking into a mirror. Well, Anyways, Bingo Brown. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh my! Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey guys, this is Matt Jones, Drew Franklin from the Fade This Podcast. we got a great episode coming up. Picks in all the sports, football, basketball, we do them all. But here's a preview of this week's episode. Do you think it's more embarrassing to dye your hair or to have hair plugs? I don't think either are embarrassing if you're not trying to conceal it and act like you didn't. Okay. So you think if you just come out and go, I got hair plugs. Yeah. Like, check out these hair plugs. I mean, don't just walk around, hey, tapping, <laughs> hey, hey, stranger, I don't want you thinking this is natural. You know, but I mean, <laughs> do you, you have to do that with everyone you meet? try to act like they, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I mean, like, like John Cena got it. You know, when John Cena came back to wrestling, he had a bald spot, and now he doesn't. Mm-hmm. You think he should be required in all interviews to say, "Look, by the way, I covered up my bald spot." Yeah, I guess it's weird. I mean, you don't wear a sign or like put a sign in your yard, but all right. So, what about toupees? Those are the most obvious. I but let's like. say you're like Bill Self, and you can get it to where it looks good. His is magical. I don't even know if his is a toupee. It is. I think he went into the future and had a procedure we haven't even discovered yet. And this episode was brought to you in partnership with DraftKings. To hear more, listen and subscribe to Fade This on iHeartRadio or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. All right, the New England Patriots have a quarterback. And, and Jenny, you have some thoughts on Mac Jones to the Patriots and really the Patriots in general. Well, I really liked their draft, Gary. Uh, I know some people questioned the move up to get Christian Barmore. Uh, was the price worth it? But their run defense was awful last year. And so they basically made some really, you know, I thought, you know, they sit and they get Mac Jones at 15. And then in the second round, they move up to get a player that will really help them. But I think now is when we're really seeing the post Tom Brady era start. A few people responded on Twitter, Gary, you may have seen, and they were like, uh, are you a moron? Clearly the post Tom Brady era started last year. <laughs> well, yes, but like this is when it really starts. Last year was just kind of like a gap year for the Patriots. I mean, they had uh, league high eight players opt out. They didn't sign their starting quarterback till June. Then that starting quarterback was on the COVID list and it interrupted a promising start to the season. So it just ended up kind of being a nothing year. But what came out of the nothing year was the number 15 pick, uncharacteristically high for the Patriots. They hadn't picked that high, I think, in 13 years. I think the last was 2008. Um, and so now we saw them go on this free agent spending spree. We see them draft a quarterback, which is the highest quarterback Bill Belichick has ever drafted. And they address some of last season's uh, glaring holes, which were a result of both players opting out and also years of poor drafting. Uh, and now I think is when we really see what, what the plan is. Um, I, I think Belichick has to do things differently. We, we saw last season that it wasn't as smooth a transition out of the Tom Brady era as perhaps we might've thought. And, out of necessity, he's doing things differently. So he spent in free agency because he had to, also potentially to take advantage of the shrinking cap and slightly depressed market. And he drafts a quarterback high because he has to. And so I think a lot of the moves seem uncharacteristic, but really they're just what makes sense when you're trying to build a team differently than you have had to over the last two decades. I thought that's a great point, and I was blown away by the, um, well, the Paul Feinbaum thing. I think he got the mileage that he wanted out of that. He wanted attention for that comment to say that Belichick had gotten lazy um, and that there was a real concern that he was, like, you know, basically preparing to run this franchise into the ground. And I thought that was such a ridiculous, 
leap from a seven and nine season that was not that bad. Like it was, you know, you you had like half of your team opt out and you had a, a very limited Cam Newton at quarterback and you still won seven games is kind of how I would look at it. And I would consider myself a Belichick apologist to a certain degree, but this is a good draft and everyone's like, oh, he's just drafting Alabama players now. But this is a version of what he's always done. He's always gone where he's gotten the best information. He used to be really good friends with Urban Meyer and he drafted a lot of Florida guys during that time. He was very close with Greg Schiano and he drafted a ton of Rutgers guys. And now he feels that his best information is coming from Nick Saban. And so he's going to draft a lot of Alabama guys like it. It makes sense. And, you know, people can knock the draft record for what it is but if you've been drafting for 20 years obviously there's going to be a larger sample size to pick apart and say well this guy didn't work out this guy didn't work out um and oh it's only tom brady when i think that's ridiculous i mean they've had some pretty tremendous mid-round hits and guys that have gone on to to be pretty successful in the nfl well and if you're gonna criticize their last four drafts or so before this one, which is, is totally fair. They, they were bad drafts, but they were not because they were just, you know, plucking the same guys or the same programs. I mean, you know, they, they were trading down and, and rolling the dice on, on, you know, the, the, the Derek Rivers type guys, not to pick on Derek Rivers, but uh, I mean, that's, that's what they were doing. This draft to me didn't really match what they've been doing in recent years. So it, it, uh, I mean, look, if if Mac Jones can play, uh, you don't have any problem with it. I I think it's Mac Jones to me is interesting because I just think the position is going in such a different direction around the league that uh, you know we'll we'll, we'll see it, it when you're a quarterback who doesn't have mobility to fall back on and can't create your own time and space. I don't want to overstate that with Mac Jones because he does move fairly well. I'd, I'd probably put him in, uh, you know. Well, the Kirk Cousins comp is what everyone uses, but as an athlete, I would put him in the Kirk Cousins comp as far as his uh, as far as his movement skills go. But uh, it's just it's a thin line you walk when you don't have that other self stuff to fall back on. And uh, you know, if if the more condensed pocket in the NFL becomes an issue for him, and and you saw it was an issue for Tua last year. Not that Tua is something you write off at this point, but uh, I mean, it it might fall apart for him and they might be back to square one with the quarterback again. That's fair, Gary. Yeah. And I think a lot of how this draft works out or most of how this draft works out depends on if Mac Jones works out, but to Connor's points, clearly Belichick was getting an unvarnished report from Saban. He would have more in-depth knowledge than anyone else from his college coach uh, about what works, what doesn't work. He has a offensive coordinator who has a lot of experience developing an offense around a quarterback whose mobility is also not a strength. Again, not to compare Mac Jones to Tom Brady, but in that category, they, you know, that's not a huge part of their game, obviously. So, um, you know, I think they have a, some challenges to, to make it work, but they've also supplemented the offense in other ways too, and clearly believe that they can win games with his ability, that it will not be a limiting factor for them. Yeah, if you're looking back at the last couple of years, by the way, uh, he took the two Georgia guys in 2018, Isaiah Wynn and Sonny Michelle. I mean, Sonny Michelle, yeah, sure, Sonny Michelle was kind of a reach at the 31st pick when you look back at it now. Uh, Isaiah Wynn is, I, I wouldn't call him a disaster by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, 
other than that, I mean, you know, he's he's drafted two Alabama guys in the last four years, uh, both third round picks, Anthony Jennings and Damian Harris in 2020 and 2019. So I don't I, I don't think there's a uh, I don't think there's much of a narrative to be picked on here as this being an extension of their sort of drought over the last couple of years as far as the drafting goes. Uh, let's go to, uh, let's, I guess we should reference the, the number one pick of the draft at some point. And uh, if you're a Clemson fan, I guess you're now a Jaguars fan because they have Trevor Lawrence and they have Travis Etienne and they are, they're building something there and we'll see how quickly it gets going here for the Jaguars. And, and by the way, we had, uh, it seems like a lot, but it's probably not a lot, but you had a lot of like quarterbacks reuniting with uh, their old buddies here. So, you know, Jalen Hurts gets an Alabama guy. Uh, and of course, uh, Joe Burrow gets uh, Jamar Chase. I have a question for Connor because I noticed I'm not going to call it a burning question. I'm just going to call it a question. <laughs> Connor gave the Jaguars a C plus in his draft grades, which I think is a little bit, a little bit of a Maverick opinion. So, Connor, I'd be curious what you did not like about the draft. Well, I think I I, I wanted to grade everything on a curve, and so Trevor Lawrence is kind of like, okay, like you nailed the first essay question, that's, which was put your name on the paper, you know. That's the free space in video. Yeah, that's like, you know, and then I, I just thought afterwards, like your your biggest need was, was run defense, and you kind of went – with Travis Etienne and you have plenty of talent at the running back position. And, um, you know, he's starting to talk about, well, he's going to be a third down weapon and we're going to use him like Percy Harvin. Um, what on your, who on your offensive staff is, has the, the built-in creativity to make this work? Like this is not, um, you know, this is kind of like a, a, a shot, you know, it's a Brian Schottenheimer production. This is not, you know, I, I can't see Travis Etienne being featured in a way that would warrant that pick when there were really good other players on the board. Now, you know, they got lucky in the second round and they had, uh, you know, the safety that they needed dropped to them. Um, but I just think like there were some, I think that there's like some of his sensibilities that are still very collegiate where, mm -hmm. you know, we're just going to overload people with speed. Um, but that it's not going to necessarily work that way. I just don't think Travis Etienne is going to be Travis Etienne in the NFL. Yeah, no, I, I didn't disagree with the grade. I was just curious what went into it. Uh, and I think that those are all really important points. I mean, Etienne is somewhat of a luxury pick, and that's a guy that maybe, you know, we could have seen the Buccaneers taking at 32, a team that has, you know, all of its returning starters from the Super Bowl, right? Or, you know, maybe the Bills who who want another another piece to get over the hump or something along those lines. So uh, I think th th those are all fair. And, and yeah, as for the overall outlook, it does seem to be the sort of college team building approach where you take, you know, these five-star recruit types uh, and build a team that way. And it is a very different game in the NFL. I, uh, my Twitter mentions can't handle defending a first round running back here. So I'll, I'll tread lightly. <laughs> um, I don't mind the, the ETM pick. I think the, uh, I don't want to call it a better comp, but I think the better ceiling comp is, is probably an Alvin Kamara type role. I don't know why he threw up her. I mean, he had Percy Harvin. That's why you throw it out. Uh, uh Daryl Bevel, I, I don't want to overstate it. 
I think Daryl Bevel did a really nice job in Detroit. I thought he remade that offense. Uh, and frankly, I thought he did a decent job in Seattle. He's a little bit conservative as a play caller, but I thought as far as what his sort of general designs were and, and sort of their identity, uh, I mean, it worked at a time when I think a lot of offensive coordinators around the league didn't know exactly what to do with Russell Wilson, who's a guy who's really, a, you know, an improvisational master, but maybe not, uh, you know, a traditional uh, okay, you know, we're, we're going to draw up, we're going to look at this offense and draw up the same thing and borrow some of their things, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I'm, I'm bullish on the Jaguars here going into the season. Uh, I, uh, I, I still think this whole, I think this whole system's messed up. I'm want to put the whole system on trial here as far as uh allowing a team to just tank their way into a Trevor Lawrence but uh that's that's a whole that's a whole other thing to talk about on another show Zach Wilson goes to the Jets and I guess the thing that's sort of standing out to everyone right now is they never really built around Sam Darnold, certainly not effectively. Uh, they they tried to, it just didn't really work out. Uh, what they're building around Zach Wilson at this point, though, looks kind of intriguing. And I was kind of, I was going back and and watching some Corey Davis and and you know sort of looking at what the 49ers and Rams do out there. And the more I think about it, I actually really like that Corey Davis fit uh, in this offense here. And you just look at it, uh, you know. It, Denzel Mims is a guy I still like because it's like a deep threat. Elijah Moore is really interesting to me as their second-round pick. Uh, it's I, I think a lot of people are surprised. You see Jameson Crowder is already on the roster. Jameson Crowder is still an effective slot receiver in the league. Jameson Crowder is sort of – I feel like he's like the old idea of what we think of as a slot receiver, the guy who kind of separates underneath and is a security blanket type, type of guy. Uh, Elijah Moore is a vertical threat. Uh, from the slot, and that has become so in vogue because you have so many teams playing cover two at this point, and that's a that's a way of busting that cover two. So you get a slot receiver who can do work downfield. That's what Elijah Moore brings, theoretically. We'll see how he does in the NFL. But theoretically, that's what he brings that a Jameson Crowder does not bring. So you have a different way of attacking here. And obviously, uh, again, on paper, you look at the left side of this line with Mekhi Becton and, uh, and now Elijah Vera Tucker, and you you really like what you see at this point. Yeah, I thought it was, um, you know, Elijah Moore is going to be that guy where, you know, Sam Darnold never had that could, if you're in a, if you're in a bind or especially early in the game when you're just trying to get him in rhythm, he can take that, that bubble screen or that quick out and then he can gain, you know, eight or nine yards and move the offense a little bit and just get your quarterback some confidence, which I think is super helpful, but this is an aggression that we haven't seen um, and sort of a sense of urgency that we haven't seen um, with the Jets in quite some time. And, you know, I think we've always kind of had this, uh, you know, outside of Mark Sanchez, who really did have a great offensive line to work behind um, and and that kind of informed their um, process throughout the quarterbacks they've taken since then have not had this luxury. And I'm not calling anything great at this point, but you're much better off now than you were before. And I thought that um, it, it felt like they were going to go edge with that second first round pick, but to be as aggressive as they did and move up to get Vera Tucker um, and just kind of show that commitment to locking down to those offensive line spots. It's like, okay, we get it now, but but it's interesting. The one knock on Wilson has been that he had a ton of time in the pocket in BYU. And so are you trying to kind of do your best? I mean, everybody wants to create pocket time, but are are you a little bit concerned about how quickly he's going to be able to get the ball out? And thus, you know, you're spending that kind of capital to, to beef up the offensive line. 
I know the Vera Tucker pick, you know, moving up to, to get him got a little bit of criticism. Oh, the Jets are moving up for a guard. But I think Vera Tucker is really versatile. And he's also a player that after I put out my mock draft, to my great regret, <laughs> uh, a, lot, a lot of feedback that I was hearing was just that he was really underrated and that teams really loved him. Uh, and the Jets moving up to get him speaks to that. They knew they couldn't get him later. And their first four picks were really a statement. After taking Zach Wilson, they took an offensive guard, they took a wide receiver, and they took a running back, basically saying, we're not just going to take you, we're going to support you. And I thought that was a really... A strong message to send right after drafting him two overall, especially because that was not what Sam Darnold had. Yeah, if you're going to design the type of run game that uh, they want to have there, which is obviously, you know, Mike McDaniel coming off the Shanahan tree from San Francisco, uh, I think a guard makes plenty of sense. And, you know, the the caveat with all these guys is, was he the right guy? Can he play in the NFL? We're about to find out. Uh, and if he can't, it was a bad pick. And if he can, he fits what you want to do, and he's going to help you build your identity. And uh, I think it made all the world, uh, all, all the sense of the world, to jump up and get him uh, at that point. And uh, yeah, just uh, just just as far as this goes, I mean, you're going to see they're going to move Zach Wilson around a lot. They're going to uh, try and create those big, wide thrown platforms like he had at BYU. Nothing will be quite like that, but. Um, they have a way of making this work. You can look at this team and, and see solutions at this point where uh, maybe you couldn't see that in the past. The the only other thing that stood out to me with the Jets, I thought they were going to take a tight end. I thought you were going to see much more of a Shanahan approach where you say, uh, we're going to put heavy personnel on the field and put you in base, and then we're going to use these guys in different ways. They didn't take a tight end. They're They're going to be a three receiver base here. I mean, they have a ton of receivers. They have, you know, if, if you believe in Chris Herndon still, uh, they have maybe one starting caliber tight end on the roster. I think it's going to look a lot like what Sean McVay does with the Rams. Not that you have to copy someone else's offense every time we look at this stuff. But uh, as far as using, you know, the way McVay uses a Robert Woods or, or a Cooper Cup, almost in uh, almost in a tight endish capacity, I think you're going to see that with a Corey Davis uh, and, and see some of these sort of, uh, you know, concepts that you'd normally use with a tight end with, uh, with their receivers and sort of build it out that way. And as we know, Zach Wilson can make plays off platform. And I think, uh, I think they're probably feeling pretty good as long as the, as long as the quarterback can play, they are building things logically at this point. And I think there's something to be celebrated there. It really is the first time, uh, well, I mean, you know, Jenny and I covered those Jets teams and the for, for at least some time there seemed to be kind of a sensibility to the way that they were building things for for the quarterback. But the rest of the quarterbacks that the Jets have drafted since then have really entered, you know, overwhelmingly scattershot uh, positions like, you know, even when Todd Bowles was there, I don't think his, the first selection of offensive coordinator was probably what he would have done if he had to do it all over again. And there were some disastrous, um, you know, results there where, you know, nobody was on the same page. There was, you know, a lot of issues there. Um, and you could say the same, uh, you could say the same as this moved on through the Adam Gase era too. So, and Geno Smith, um, you know, you go from Marty Morningwig, Tony Sperano, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so, I, I think this is the first time when everything seems to be lining up where the, the personnel department is kind of feeding the coaching staff the kinds of things that they need to make this work the right way. 
another team that selected a quarterback with with their first selection in this draft is the is the Houston Texans. Uh, I mean, I think we were all in our our group text and jaws were dropping when the when the Texans selected Davis Mills in the third round. I'm not sure what to think about this team or this organization at this point, or at least it's it's not anything I want to put on the air in case, uh, I don't know, maybe they have a plan. Maybe we just don't see it, and maybe uh, they are going to unlock some greatness out of some of these uh, interesting free agents they brought in, and uh, we're going to see a, a, a very surprising, I don't know, Little Giants-style team this year in Houston, but you're just looking at this roster. This is... This is an expansion roster. I like. I don't. I don't know how else to say it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, is Owen seventeen in play here? It's. It's just. It doesn't look like it's going to be competitive here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's you know, I, the the Davis Mills thing. To me, I mean, I don't know. It seemed to tip me off in, in in that in order for this was a team that needed so many things. It's like so many things. You could throw a dart at this roster anywhere and spend your highest amount of draft capital on that person. And you know, I saw how it was immediately couched as like, oh well, if Deshaun Watson comes back, it's a great backup. It's like, well, but you don't need a great backup. You need everything. You need <laughs> offensive line help. You need wide yeah. receivers. You need tight ends. You need you know everything on this roster. And I think that after Mills, they did a decent job at getting guys in the late rounds of a bad draft that could probably contribute. But you're right. I mean, this is um, this is a minor league roster at this point. And uh, I don't know what the what the goal is here, because if you have some foresight, like wouldn't you rather have spent your best draft equity on a guy who's who can help you right away and do things right away because you're going to tank out and then maybe you get the number one pick next year anyway and you get a quarterback and and then what do you do with davis mills i don't know I mean, or maybe davis mills is great and, and he could very well be very good but the the whole thing was just sort of uh jolting when when we saw it happen yeah and i think really driving home the situation that they're in when they would list all of the team's draft needs usually it'd be two, three, four positions, right? They'd put on the ESPN ticker. Texans come up, Mel Kuyper's needs, you know, it, it stretched across the whole bottom graphic. Uh, what do they have? Basically, a, a, they have a left tackle. They're fine at running back. Um, is, is that it? I mean, I, you know, it's a really it's a really thin roster, and it's easier to uh, – it's a much shorter list to name the things that they don't uh, need than the things that they do. Interesting times in Houston. Yeah, I, I mean, I will say, as far as Davis Mills goes, uh, obviously developmental guy. You know, a lot of day two picks at quarterback don't pan out. Uh, we'll see how it goes. I mean, Pep Hamilton and Tim Kelly are professional coaches there, and that gives you something of a chance. It's just, uh, I mean, I, I don't think you can put him on the field this year uh, with this roster and this team. But uh, we'll see how this goes. And I still, I mean, we talked about this on the on the mock draft show. I don't know what they're going to do defensively. Uh, if Lovey Smith is going to install any of the concepts that he ever used throughout his coaching career, none of these guys fit what he does. So it's like, I, I don't know. I don't know how this adds up when it's all said and done. I don't know if they 
mind going out there and losing a bunch of this a bunch of games and saying this is a reset year anyway and shrug your shoulders and move on but uh yeah that was uh that was something it really was <laughs> the raiders i will i will start with the defense of the las vegas raiders and say when you get when you get around the late teens like late teens to 40 all those guys all those prospects are kind of you know they're kind of at the same level and does it really matter who you pick when it's all said and done (laughs) (laughs) i i so i i've tried to couch all of my criticism of the raiders by saying that you can't say that a team had a good draft because they drafted all the guys that uh, Todd McShay said we're good, mm-hmm. right? And that th- this is the trap that we fall into every year, right? Where we grade or, you know, I've noticed that I tend to bias my grading a little bit on like, oh, well, this team has three guys that I had heard of before this started, you know, and, and started working on this. And, and so that must mean they had a great draft. And so I, I think in a lot of ways, it's kudos to Mike Mayock and John Gruden for thumbing their nose at the system certainly and but but after the first year with cleland farrell and then uh you know with arnett and now leatherwood it's like these guys are so far off on other teams draft boards that it's not just we're raider haters and you know all this stuff it's like maybe something is wrong in your process you know if if you could have gotten that guy in the second round then you know you need to work harder at this and you know if there was a better tackle out there that could have helped you sooner uh, you should have drafted him instead and i think that there's a difference between criticizing them because they're not going by the Daniel Jeremiah top 50 and criticizing them because none of these picks seem to be working out. You know, I think it would be different if, you know, Cleland Farrell was a sack monster, you know, or Arnett was, you know, really breaking out. But instead, they're already at the point where they're drafting guys to replace the guys that they drafted before that aren't working out. And so at what point does the owner of the Raiders look and say, you know, cause a lot of owners are draft junkies. It's something that, and I put that in air quotes, but it's something that they can like kind of understand. And they see a lot of ri- stuff written about it. But if you're Mark Davis, it's like, do you look around and say like, isn't it weird that like every year we're picking a guy that is nowhere near anybody's, you know, top player available, like, and, and, and that we haven't made the playoffs yet. Like, doesn't that seem odd to anybody? Yeah, the criticism is fair because the first few years of this new direction or this, you know, renewed John Gruden era have not gone the way that they were promised to go. So the scrutiny is very valid. I agree, Connor. It speaks to to credibility and that credibility has not been earned over the last couple of years. The Eagles leapfrog the Giants, and when it happened, we all kind of said, well, this is weird. The Giants were going to take a receiver, so why did the Eagles bother jumping up ahead of them to get uh, Devontae Smith? But it turns out they were right, and uh, the Giants were reportedly going to take Devontae Smith, and the Eagles jump up and get him. So uh, victory there for the Eagles, which which is good. I don't have a whole lot else to say about the Eagles draft class. I don't know if you guys want to want to chime in on any thoughts on that, but uh, I did want to bring up real quick because it's like all of my least favorite things combined into one thing. Uh, the Zach Ertz situation, where uh, it's one for the second time this off season, uh, Howie Roseman doesn't seem 
to realize how the rest of the world assesses his own players. Like when he thought Carson Wentz was going to be traded for a Matthew Stafford package, and it was like, well, you have one team, and they'll give you a little bit more because they don't want to go through the, you know, they don't want to embarrass, Colts don't want to embarrass Carson Wentz by saying like, hey, we just got you for a sixth rounder. Uh, Come be our quarterback. And it's also this like, look, Zach Ertz has been there for a long time. I, I'm not going to start a GoFundMe for him. He's made a lot of money. He's had a lot of success. He's had a wonderful career. Uh, he doesn't want to be there anymore. Just move him. Move him for a sixth-round pick. That's his value now. He was He's 30 years old. He struggled badly last year. No one is going to give you a day-two pick for Zach Ertz unless somehow their entire tight end depth chart gets decimated in August. And then you're just kind of a jerk for hanging on to Zach Ertz until the absolute last minute and creating this discomfort with a guy who was a, a cornerstone player on a Super Bowl team. So just do right by your player if he wants out. And it sounds like Ertz definitely wants out. Just move him and just take the draft capital. Do what the Patriots did with Rob Gronkowski. They could have held on to Gronkowski and, and held him hostage and said, uh, we're just going to keep you and sit you if the Bucks don't make this a second round or whatever it is. Rob Gronkowski is better than Zach Ertz was last year. He was more valuable. You're not getting a day two pick for Zach Ertz. Just trade him for a low draft pick and move on and just, just, do the right thing by your player. That's it. That's my rant. I think uh, in addition to that, uh, there's been very little talked about the, uh, did you see the video of the frantic Howie Roseman fist bump thing? Did anybody see that? <laughs> yeah, have not. Um, I didn't. Like after they made a pick, like in their war room, he just came like flying in, like he wasn't there. And then he just came flying in like, Oddly, like very quickly fist bumping everybody, but then like seemed to get into an argument with somebody who like had the facial expression of a guy who didn't love the pick and how he was like, what's wrong? Like, why don't you like this? And uh, it was uh, it, like, I, I'm just I'm projecting a little bit there. Um, was but, that person Zach Ertz? <laughs> but uh, yeah, that that was kind of left uh, left unexplained. I, I the, my only question with the Eagles and I never got a satisfactory answer. um I think Rich Eisen brought it up on draft night was like, why, why is this trade even happening? Like these are division rivals that play each other twice a year. And the Cowboys are like, yeah, sure. Go get a great wide receiver. We don't care. Um, and the answer was like, dad, these young GMs just mix it up and do things differently. Well, these young GMs are Howie Roseman and, and Jerry Jones. So it's not like this is like, um, you know, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, Silicon like Valley two, here, you know. It's, it's like two fists of a boy band there, Colin. Yeah, and so I, I just never got a satisfactory answer there. I mean, the Eagles didn't seem to have sacrificed a ton of draft capital um, from the beginning. Their goal was to get one of the two Alabama guys, and they did that. Um, but that whole thing was just weird to me. Like, why would you allow them to go up and get that guy? And I don't know. Were you trying to keep him away from the Giants because you thought the Giants might use him more effectively? Or I don't know. The whole thing was just kind of interesting to me. Yeah, because you knew exactly who they were going for, which I imagine is in play in, in some amount of draft trades. But even if they didn't tell you that, you knew who they were going for. I mean, it was it was pretty well out there that they were targeting receiver and the Giants clearly had the need so they would have to leapfrog them so I agree like 
I would be interested to learn what went into that decision. As for that exchange, Connor, so I, I think it was addressed a little bit. The the Eagles beat reporters don't miss anything, right? So I believe they asked about it. Uh, so it was an awkward exchange with Tom Donahoe, um, the Eagles senior personnel uh, evaluator. And uh, I think he was frustrated that uh, Roseman had traded back and thus lost a player that was went off the board mm. in the couple slots. I th- what they moved back three slots or something. Um, so that was interesting because um, there has been a lot of focus on the potential tension in the Eagles front office, uh, turbulent off season. And basically, I mean, even a friend of mine texted me like, why do they even do these cameras in, in the draft rooms? I mean, I everyone's always just cheering and high-fiving. I was like, well, except for the Eagles. Like, they're <laughs> the only team that was not, like that there was an issue that was caught. Because you're right, usually it's a celebratory environment. And if there is an issue, people go go off the screen. So uh, this was quite unusual that like it was just laid bare for everybody to see. I did enjoy like, I so... I watched the first round, part of the first round with my wife. And when the Lions took Panay Sewell, uh, the reaction in the war room was magnanimous. Like there was like grown men just like jumping around and hugging each other. And she's like, didn't they know like he would be available? Like, <laughs> like, like it doesn't seem like this is, this should have been that much of a surprise. And I was like, yeah, you're right. This is like, this is ridiculous. And, but it's it's great for those little moments like the Howie Roseman one, like Nike Belichick sitting at the table. Um, you know, those are the the little things that you do it for. Patriots draft setup today uh, this year was very morose. By the way, it was like uh, it did not look like it, it looked like it was like in a rented red roof inn, and like everyone was just like kind of unhappy. You know, I, 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 that, that just a subplot to keep an eye on. Wow. All right. Well, I will say, as far as the Lions, I, I think there was some level of surprise. Maybe, I'm sure in their scenarios as they went through, they they one of the potential scenarios would be that Sewell was still there. But given the caliber of player that he is and the projections that most teams had on him, I do think there is a little bit of, like, did this really happen? Like, did this player last to our pick? I think there was a little bit of that that was fair. And I like the enthusiasm, you know. Part of it's just, you know, like I get that way before every weak side podcast, um, but not everybody can get to feel that every day, like every every Monday, like I do. So, you know. They also have to keep up appearances to an extent because if, if Dan Campbell's war room is just like politely clapping at the first round pick, that's not true. That's yeah. Great point, Gary. Very they fair. should, they should have been celebrating to the point where people were punching each other in the face. <laughs> right. That's really what right. we were going for, but didn't quite get there. Next year. So, <laughs> so we know we know the Cowboys uh, went all defense, which, I mean, look, hey, we thought that's what they should do, and they took it literally and, and basically did that. Uh, but I do want to touch on the Giants here. Of course, they had that trade down. Uh, first time ever, Dave Gettleman trades down and ends up getting uh, Kadarius Tony, which was a bit of a surprise. And then you get Aziz Ojolari in the second round, which uh, that clinches it. Uh, Giants did win the draft with that pick. That was uh, that was mm-hmm. when it was over. Uh, and we are we are we are well on our way to a Jets Giants Super Bowl Fifty Eight matchup <laughs> at this point. But um, the the Tony pick, we'll touch on this real quick because. 
sure, they needed another weapon. You just figured, okay, they they just you know signed Kenny Galladay to this big contract. I think Kenny Galladay meshes very well with what Daniel Jones does. Uh, Daniel Jones isn't a big arm guy, but he is a guy who will give his playmakers a chance to go up and get the ball. And Kenny Galladay is a dominant contested catch guy. And now they add in Kadarius Tony, a guy who can absolutely you know blow defensive backs away in the middle of the field and create a lot of separation here. Uh, and I like Sterling Shepard just fine. I, I just I think Sterling Shepard is kind of a uh, a complimentary player here, but you have kind of again in theory uh, sort of an elite downfield contested catch guy, and now you have sort of an elite uh, guy who can not only stretch uh, the middle of the field, but also is just going to constantly be open in the middle of the field. And uh, you know we we've said a lot. Uh, you know, is this make or break year for Daniel Jones? I I don't really you know I I don't think it's that binary but uh daniel jones certainly has every opportunity to make a big leap forward in 2021 yeah i like the i like putting a lot of pressure on uh, you know putting a lot on his plate after the galladay trade like you said and um the focus of their draft this year um if you're the if you're the giants you're in a good spot because this roster is still super young um you still have a great defensive coordinator Patrick Graham who you hope you can hold on to um if you want to make a change but now Daniel Jones like I, I think that this third year is a very fair evaluation if he remains healthy and the offensive line remains somewhat intact um I think you know what you have and if you're the bear you know if you're the giants you can almost you know, flip the escape hatch um, even a little bit sooner than the Bears did on Trubisky and, uh, you know, and, and not kind of punish yourself for it as much like they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as for Ojolari, I guess this year's edge class, because it was such a uncertain group, I, you know, there were varied evaluations on a lot of players. There were some players who opted out. There were some players with medical issues. There were wide range of skill sets. It seemed like everybody had something that teams were kind of unsure about. So perhaps it does make sense that a a talented player, that that it would be one or two that would slide. But still, getting him at pick number 50 is just an incredible steal. I mean, uh, I thought he could have been a mid-first rounder just based on how how some teams seem to love him. Uh, So... That was that was tremendous, and yeah, obviously picking up the extra draft capital for next year. Dave Gettleman really showed them in this year's draft. I love that Dave Gettleman and Ryan Pace turned into Cool Hand Luke this weekend. Like <laughs> of all the people, but I secretly like. I, I'm I'm very happy for Dave Gettleman now that he is an analytical darling. It is it has completed the 180 that we needed to make as a society. So I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah, Aziz Ojolari, he he was the best edge guy in this draft. Yeah. When you're that fast and that bendable around the edge, even if you need some pop, I mean, that that's so much to work with. That's like 90% of the battle. I think to finish my point or what I was trying to say is I could see a talented edge rusher slipping. It, I would not have guessed it would have been Ojolari. Yeah. He was not one that I would have expected to slip. Yeah. Uh. We're going to get to a uh, a lightning round that probably won't be very lightning roundy uh, in a minute here. But I just did want to touch on this real quick because one of the things I found really interesting, when we did our mock draft exercise, our mock draft series, the quadrilogy that you all uh, 
uh, know and love. Uh, you know, that exercise is it's based heavily on team needs and we're assigning who, you know, we would kind of take uh, when thinking about those team needs first and foremost. And uh, because of that, some guys who are probably valued higher end up in the 20s and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we ended up assigning Jeremiah Owusu Koromoa to the Browns at 26. And it just sort of felt like, well, I, you know, on draft night, obviously, he won't be available there. But, you know, he's a guy who would fit really well with what they need. And instead, on draft night, they get him at 52. So uh, what sort of stood out to me for this pick? And, and obviously, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I will speak for you guys and say we all liked the pick. Uh, Isaiah Simmons, this time last year, it was all about positionless football. And Isaiah Simmons, you can do anything you want with him. And and for the Cardinals, it kind of became this kind of thing where it was like they didn't know what to do with him. And I don't know if that's necessarily a, a, a huge knock on Vance Joseph, who I think did a tremendous job with that defense last year, but they just couldn't find the right use for Isaiah Simmons. And did that sort of rub off onto uh, the guy they call J.O.K. and... Is that the reason he ends up slipping? Is you had a lot of defensive coordinators saying like, ah, I, I, I get it. You know, here's a linebacker who you can almost play as a defensive back if you have to. But what is he? What's you know, where do you end up playing him in our scheme? What's his position? And are we sort of maybe very quietly sliding away from positionless football because guys, I, I don't know. He seemed to he seemed to scare teams off in the end. Yeah, I think you're right. Gary, that precedent often does affect future players. And because the Simmons situation was somewhat hard to figure out and somewhat frustrating, right? Because he was this exciting player, one of the most talked about players, at least defensive players in, in last year's class. And to not see him make the impact that perhaps you would have hoped last season, I, I think did affect the stock of others this year. And I, perhaps you look at JOK and say, well, he doesn't even have everything that Simmons had. So if Simmons couldn't succeed, then there's even lower chance that he could. But for the Browns, I mean, I think that they also had a, a really tremendous draft and uh, have a lot of, you know, you know, they were a good team last year, obviously, but here they use their first two picks on defensive players that can really make that unit even better and, you know, fill in some gaps, make a strong secondary stronger. And I think they will find a place for JOK. I think he will be a difference maker in their defense. Yeah, I, I, I think like just because one guy, you know, can't figure out how to use a tremendous player. And we talked about this all uh, throughout the um the preseason last year where there was quotes um, where their defensive coordinator was saying, well, we're not going to really be able to use him like we did at Clemson. Why not? You know what I mean? Like, that, that drives me nuts. Like, Clemson figured it out. Why don't you just figure it out? And so I think that there are probably, hopefully, other teams that are still bought into the idea of positionless football. And, uh, you know, I think the Browns got a score here. I mean, they really did upgrade to the point where I think they have players that are good enough to cover just about anybody, you know, that they're going to face. And they really did a tremendous job of upgrading that defense. All right, guys, we're going to lightning-ish round this thing to wrap it up. And I, this will just be, it'll be potpourri. It'll be miscellaneous. And we'll we'll go through drafts we liked, drafts we didn't, drafts we uh, didn't really feel strongly about, but just want to call out one way or the other. 
Um, I'll start. I, I, I do want to mention the Falcons real quick because, I, I, look, I was hoping the Falcons would either take one of the quarterbacks or trade out. I, I you know, I don't think they're a tight end away from, from solving their issues, and I would have liked to see them just sort of load up on picks and, and maybe use that on defense, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, you think about a guy like Kyle Pitts, and you think about sort of the history of the Falcons, and when the Falcons came up and got Julio Jones that year, and they, they gave up all this draft capital to jump up for a wide receiver, and it was kind of like, oh, well, this makes no sense unless Julio Jones ends up being like a Hall of Fame player. And, well, Julio Jones ended up being a Hall of Fame player who uh, kind of defined that uh, uh, that franchise for a couple of years there. So maybe they get something similar here in Kyle Pitts. If anyone in, the dra- in this draft class is going to be that guy, uh, among the non-quarterbacks, it's going to be Kyle Pitts. So it was it was a uh, look. Arthur Smith now has something to work with. He obviously has a plan for Kyle Pitts here, and uh, we'll see what uh, what happens in Atlanta. All right, is it our turn now, Gary, to pick it, up the it, lightning-ish it round? It I, is. I just wanted to continue to express frustration—not frustration, but surprise—and this kind of goes to our conversation a couple minutes ago, but. I can't believe the Bengals passed up on Sewell. Uh, I know Jamar Chase is a tremendous weapon. He is a guy that any team would be lucky to have. He clearly has the college connection with Joe Burrow, but I feel as though they did an insufficient job of addressing their offensive line in this year's draft, and that was clearly the biggest need for the team. Uh, All you have to do is look at Joe Burrow's knee, right? He's rehabbing. because of protection struggles last year. And so the fact that Sewell wasn't taken by the Bengals uh, is is stunning to me. But also after that, even after taking Chase, they didn't aggressively go after that position in the way that they could have. It just makes so much, it would have made so much more sense for them to get Sewell and then um, you know, there's there were still four or five really good receivers left on the board in the second round, and I, I think historically, it, it just makes more sense that to do it that way. Um, and the Bengals have had success getting guys in the second, third, fourth round at wide receiver before. I just I, I don't I don't understand the uh, the order there. And then really, I think what the really kind of knocked them out in my mind was that you also traded back in the second round um, and you missed out on like four or five that there was like that tackle run um, right there in the second round where you missed out on like Liam Eikenberg and a lot of a lot of these guys that would have been good value for your uh, picks there and then you end up with you know the player from Clemson who uh, has injury issues not really 100% sure if he's going to play guard or tackle and you know why wouldn't you have just stayed there and 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 gotten the guy that you knew you wanted um uh, I, I don't know I, I think a lot of that was just a little bit scattershot for me yeah absolutely I've I've written this. I don't think I've spoken it out loud, but I do think this probably has something to do with the fact that look, Joe Burrow was kind of reluctant coming out of LSU to to yeah. be joining the Bengals organization. I think the Bengals are probably looking at what's going on with Aaron Rodgers and Russell Wilson and and Matthew Stafford and other guys around the league and saying, well, let's let's get ahead of this a little bit. And Joe Burrow was really stumping for his guy. It's not like Jamar Chase was like, you know, a guy who was going to go second round. Um, he obviously is a very good player worthy of the, of the draft slot, but, uh, you guys make a great point. I mean, they, they, you know, they kind of missed out on their chance to address it in the second round. And you wonder if they sort of moved down thinking like, well, certainly there won't be a run on offensive tackles here. And then it happened. And then, you know, look, maybe Jackson Carmen was a guy all along. He's an, you know, interesting guy. He's probably going to transition to guard here and we'll see how it goes. But, 
that's uh, I, I think that was the Bengals kind of getting ahead of, uh, I don't know, any kind of friction with their franchise quarterback or at least franchise quarterback to be. Connor, it is your turn. Hmm. Um, I will say that if I had a, if I had a gripe necessarily, I mean, this is weird. This was because of the thinness of the draft class. I think that you could point to a lot of teams. Like when I did the graft raids, the lowest grade that I gave a team was a C. I didn't give any D's or F's or anything like that. And I think that because of the relative thinness of the draft, I think a lot of teams that were in weird positions still had a chance to do okay things and, and to, to get decent players. And so, um, I, I don't know. I thought it was like, I thought it was on the whole, like not a completely destructive draft, like outside of the Raiders, like the Bengals mate, you could follow their thought process there. Um, outside of the Raiders necessarily, like there wasn't a team that I looked at and just said like, Oh God, you know, like what's happening here? Um, you know, Miami, for example, I really liked what they did because you're, you're, you're just, you're taking the home run swing at this point. You've done all the work to get the roster to this point, And then you get Jalen Phillips who could be great. Um, or, you know, could have his long line of injury issues that forced him into semi-retirement. Jalen Waddell could be great. Um, or, you know, you might have an inability to use him correctly as an offense. But um, so I, I really like the teams that recognized where they were at as a roster and decided to just kind of go for it, given the way that this class was set up. And so I thought that was kind of an interesting subplot of this draft. Yeah, I will say as far as Miami goes, uh, I worry about Tua Tungavailoa and and the tape he put out last year, and I think all the things that we sort of said were a strength for him, uh, you know, pocket movement, accuracy, uh, decision making. I think all those things were were problematic last year. Which uh, you look around the league and see the guys who are succeeding. Your your Josh Allen's, your Justin Herberts, the guys who sort of break out after year one are the are the traits guys. And I don't think two is necessarily a trait guy. And I just think it's going to be fascinating what happens in the next couple of years, because they might've now built this thing properly around him. He didn't have enough weapons. They had a lot of injuries at that receiving core last year. And uh, they did need to address that. And they did uh, along with taking Jalen Waddle, they add Will Fuller. Now you got two speed guys who can absolutely separate uh, Tua seemed to have some issues with sort of, you know, college open versus NFL open last year. That's not an issue when you have guys who can sort of blow people away here. Uh, but it's uh, it's just going to be fascinating. They, they threw away a season in order to get him. And they now, if you look at it, they, they, they passed on Justin Herbert. They passed on, uh, you know, uh, uh, Trey Lance, Justin Fields, Mac Jones this year. If you want to go with one of those guys with a third pick, uh, they have really gone all in on a quarterback the way that few teams, uh, frankly, it, 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 they just sort of had this fluky trade with Houston that gave them that number three pick. But few teams have sort of had to do that, uh, I don't know, recommitment ceremony to their uh, maybe shaky rookie quarterback after year one here. And uh, Miami is one of those teams and they're sticking with their guy and we'll see how it plays out. In fairness, Gary, I will say that passing on Herbert looks a lot different now than it did a year ago, mm. right? I think there were a few teams last year that preferred Herbert over Tua. It was, it was certainly overwhelmingly the other way around that, that Tua was ahead of Herbert and Herbert 
took a huge jump in the NFL and um, I think surprised a lot of people around the league. But yeah, I uh, basically they executed a plan. They've executed the plan well in terms of accumulating draft capital and having a lot of chances to get top players economically. But that whole plan hinges on, did they get the quarterback rights? And I think we have yet to know that answer. The other thing that's interesting is that there has just been a lot of turbulence on the Dolphins coaching staff. And now they're going into a third straight year with with different offensive coordinators. It was O'Shea, and then it was Gailey, and now it's the uh, co-coordinators between Godsey and, and Eric Studesville. So, um I think that will be interesting, too, because they haven't quite figured out that uh, role under Brian Flores. He hasn't gotten what he wants from that position on his coaching staff. And will this be the year that he does get what it is that he wants there? Did uh, did you guys watch NFL Network or ESPN? I watched ESPN. I watched the Nickelodeon broadcast <laughs> that would have been see now the draft would be perfect for well i guess it'd be a little late for kids though mm. what happened to the after the nickelodeon did a great job with the uh, nfl broadcast they were like well we, we're gonna do this with all sorts of properties like you're gonna have whatever the cast of is below deck a show yes below deck is a bravo show where they're like people work on like a yacht okay they're like I, the staff of the yacht and they said, like, well, like, okay, you'll watch a game with the below deck people, or you'll watch a game with, okay, like an Christopher Maloney and Mariska Hargitay from Law and Order, you know, like, and it's just your favorite thing plus the NFL in a way to like juice ratings, um, and and perhaps divide us even further as a nation. I don't know, but <laughs> um, you know, where was that idea for the draft? I would have loved to watch, um, you know, uh, you know see um jamar chase coming off the board um with mr Krabs and spongebob and uh and all my friends in bikini bottom you know i think that was the entertainment that we really needed I, you mm -hmm. know i and this is no fault of any of the networks that are broadcasting but it's just a really rough combination with the ambient noise inside the draft setup and people on the stage entertaining and the fans up there it's just like I just found the noise to be very overwhelming on night one. Um, and it was just a really painful listen um, because of that. N not because of what anyone was saying on the set, that's not because of anyone in their roles. I just like l it was almost physically painful. Just like the different sound inflections and variations was giving me a headache. I was going to say that's a really rough criticism of the teams <laughs> of Leon. <laughs> and you know i thought it, just to have roger goodell kind of pull it all together and be as cool and collected as he was um you know was really sort of an under uh, uh kind of an underrepresented storyline of this and and we can do an entire podcast really on um how well i thought he handled everything how wow. i feel like he's growing into this sort of presenter role he had like a almost a jimmy fallon kind of vibe i thought um what has happened here connor i'm i'm just like stunned by this uh, uh, it's hard to keep a straight face through that um but, but yeah no it was fun yeah. but nah, just I, a little less kings of leon next time 
Yeah. Uh, it, I, I had ESPN. I usually watch NFL Network. It was blacked out for some reason on my cable provider. But uh, I watched the ESPN version. And Mike Greenberg did a, did a fine job. All those guys did a nice job. But uh, there was, like, a 20-minute period where, like, Mike Greenberg said Kings of Leon, like, I don't know, 17 times. And my wife was listening in the other room, and she was just like, what are you watching? And I was like, well, it's it's the draft. I, I, Kings of Leon is playing that song. It's a, it's a good it's it's a good song, perfectly good song. Nothing wrong with the band. I guess they're 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 fine. But like they're, pre- they're pretty okay. But like a strange that song was a strange marriage for draft night. Like, wouldn't you want like a pump me up type song or like it was kind of melancholy? Where, little, little, little little tinge of emo. Little emo. I guess when I think draft, I don't think my sex is on fire. Is is all I'm saying? <laughs> is that one of their songs? Uh, yeah. That, well, that was their one, and then use somebody or whatever is the other one. Yeah, use somebody was the one that I was like, why is this being played on draft night? Yeah, it just seemed I, like a strange combination. I have to say, it was, it's a statement about the uh, I don't know ownership labor uh, relationship in the NFL. Every draft <laughs> should just start with Lou Holtz reading Dr. Seuss's "Oh, the places you will go." <laughs> That's the only way this I, can work. I just say I was going to say, Connor. I I don't want any of the like. I don't want the Nickelodeon stuff. All I want is uh, uh, an Adult Swim version. I want Tim and Eric to uh, put the whole production together, but. Uh, I think Tim and Eric would not have to do a whole lot with Lou Holtz reading Dr. Seuss to, to make perfect. it feel like a Tim and Eric production there. Yeah, it's just I, perfect. I would just like an option to mute the ambient noise. Okay. I'm with you there. All right. Uh, you know what? We're finishing the show on a very reasonable request, by the way. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if this fits the brand. Yeah, well... We started Con- off with a, a pretty hot take, and so yeah. we <laughs> say, Connor, say something crazy on the way out. <laughs> uh, Aaron Rodgers is going to be a uh, jet. <laughs> there we no, go. There you back go. Up, backing up Zach Wilson. Boom. All right, guys. You guys are back with a week side podcast tomorrow. Go subscribe to that if you don't already, and we will be back with another Mighty Show next week because we will have uh, just tons more to talk about at this point in the NFL offseason. The MMQB Monday Morning NFL Podcast is Jenny Brentis, Connor Orr, and me, Gary Gramling. We are produced by Shelby Royston. SI's executive producer of podcast is Scott Brody. Mark Mravick is emeritus editor of the MMQB. Andy Pinoy is the founder of the MMQB NFL Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to this feed as well as the feeds for the Weekside Podcast and the Albert Breer Show. They're all for free on Apple Podcasts. And once you do, leave a rating and review for all of them. It really does help other people find the shows, which are also available on Spotify, Radio.com, Stitcher, SI.com and wherever else you listen to podcasts. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL Schedule Release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.